Good morning, everybody. My name is Chris. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you. Um, our text for this morning is going to be from Genesis 11. So you can go ahead and turn there. Genesis 11. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. And in this passage of Scripture, we see the story called the Tower of Babel. So the Tower of Babel is a story that kind of transcends Christian subculture. It's a story that a lot of people have heard of. And I'm really excited to share the story with you because I believe that it's not some parable. It's not some historical story. Of course it is, but it's, it's more than that. It's something that speaks to us about who we are in our hearts, and it speaks to us about who God is and what God's heart is like. But to really get into that, to really dive into all that, we're going to have to step into the story of Genesis and the world of Genesis. We can't take, at, take it from 21st century Santa Cruz or, or we're going to miss a lot. So let's step into the world of Genesis. So in the beginning of Genesis, we see several origin stories that explain different realities of everyday life. First, there's the story of creation, right? Genesis 1, we see the origin of where everything came from. It says that God made everything that exists. And then in the fall, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve eat the fruit that they were commanded not to eat, and we see the origin of pain and suffering. And specifically, I know I'll get an amen from the mamas here, is that we see why childbirth is so painful right there in Genesis. And we've also seen why physical labor and work leaves us so tired. Right? These things that we feel in everyday life, right here in the book of Genesis, it, Moses, the author, is explaining the origins of those things. In Genesis 6, we see the origins of the lifespan of man. So, so man is sinning so much that God says, we need to limit how long humans can live, because if not, it's going to get even worse. All right, that's, that's a little bit of a confidence hit, huh? God saying, yeah, you've got you to gotta live less or else it's going to get really bad. In Genesis 9, we see the origins of the rainbow. Santa Cruz, we see a ton of rainbows, especially in the winter. We see that that rainbow is actually a sign of God's covenant blessing. The fact that we see that in the sky is a sign that God has promised to never flood the earth again. And in Genesis 11, we see the origins of all the different languages on the earth. The fact that all of these languages different in France and England and America and China and Vietnam and all these different places where they speak all these thousands of different languages, all this calls back is rooted, is, has its origins in Genesis 11. And it's no coincidence that all of these origin stories in Genesis have one commonality. Unfortunately, it's that they're plagued with human sin. 
So the disobedience of man to the commands of God is in every single one of these stories. And what Moses is doing is he's intentionally showing us that God created a perfect world, but man has messed it all up. God created a perfect world, but man has messed it all up. The story of the Tower of Babel is just continuing this pattern by showing how God's perfect world is being unperfected by his rebellious creation. And given the fact that Babel is the final scene in this list of origin stories, tells us that Moses has saved this as kind of a drop-the-mic moment. So putting this at the end of all these origin stories, Moses is making a literary point. He's emphatically showing us that this is a prototype of all of the sin and rebellion that we've seen in Genesis 1 through 11. And seeing the Tower of Babel as an emphatic literary point really helps us to kind of get around to see more clearly through a contradiction that we might see in the Bible. So some people who are criticizing the Bible might say, hey, so in Genesis 11.1, it says, now the earth had one language and the same words. But if you look at Genesis 10, in verses 5, 20, and 31, it says that the sons of Noah all had a multitude of clans, languages, lands, and nations. So which is it? Is it a multitude in Genesis 10, or is it one in Genesis 11? But seeing this as a literary point helps us to see that Moses is kind of saving it, right? He's saving it as, like I said, a drop-the-mic moment. Because all of this has been going to show that sin is at the root of all these origin stories, and, and Babel is a prototype of that. It's where we see it maybe most clearly. So, let me ask the question, what is so bad about Babel? If it's a prototype of all the sin that we've seen in Genesis 1 through 11, and we've seen a lot, what's so bad about it? What's so bad about Babylon, the people group that Babel refers to? Well, throughout the whole Bible, and and in its origin story in Genesis 11, Babylon is sort of a case study of what happens when a sinful people reject their God. And given the fact that this is an origin story, we can further see that the origin or foundation of Babylon is their desire to make a name for themselves. So we'll see that in the verses today in Genesis 11, 1 through 9, that Babylon sought to make a name for themselves. And this is what's so bad about Babylon. Babylon sought to usurp God's power and God's authority and God's throne and take it for themselves. This passage of scripture, Genesis 11, and a few others will help us to see what a disastrous decision that was for them. They thought that it would give them power and authority and sway in the world, but they were completely mistaken. And maybe after looking at these various texts, we'll see that we're not too far from Babylon ourselves. So let's look at the passage itself and see what God has to say to us. Looking at verse 1, it says, 
Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. So we already talked about this a little bit and kind of navigating why is this in chapter 11 and not 10 and why is 10 and 10 and not 11. But what I love about these types of verses is it's sort of lean in moment, right? In our kind of modern stories, we might say once upon a time and then the story starts. And, and this is what's happening here. So let's lean into this narrative that we find in scripture. Now, verse two begins the first of two scenes which we read about in the story. So the first scene is about the plans of mankind. And the second scene is about the response of God. So the first scene is about the plans of mankind. Verse two tells us that the people were coming from the east. It says, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So this is just some geographical kind of detail that we don't need to worry about, right? Wrong. It's incredibly important. The theme of east in Genesis is synonymous with leaving God's place of rest and security and, and entering his judgment. So where do Adam and Eve leave the garden from? If you look in the Bible, it's east. Where does the cherubim to protect the garden from anyone entering it again? They face east. So going west, not going to happen because of the fall. East, not good. Then where does Cain get banished to? All my John Steinbeck fans will know east of Eden. Lot went east after splitting up with Abraham, and guess where he ended up? Sodom and Gomorrah. Heading east in Genesis is not a good idea. And what the author is getting at, Moses, is he's saying, even at the start of where they were, they're going about it all wrong. They're going about it all wrong. And then the next couple of verses, we really see what they were up to at Babel. Verse 3 says, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, bitumen for mortar. No biggie, right? Just another small, unimportant detail. Wrong. <laughs> That's what I would have thought. But scholars believe that stone with mortar was the way that Israel constructed their buildings. But brick and bitumen was the way the Babylonians would have constructed their buildings. So what Moses is saying is they don't even know how to build their buildings right. These people at Babylon, they're so messed up. It's like saying they had a party and they ate Little Caesars instead of Pizza My Heart in Santa Cruz, right? It's like, what are you even doing? You're going about it all wrong. This is what Moses is saying about the people in Babylon. We're not even to the building yet, and they've got it completely wrong. They're so messed up. Now, verse 4 is where we really start getting into the nitty-gritty of the foolishness of the people at Babel. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, with this statement, Moses fully exposes the sin and rebellion of the builders at Babel. They committed two sins. Two sins. 
The first is that they wanted to build their city and tower to make a name for themselves. To be clear, it's not the building project that's wrong. Noah did that, and he was obeying God. And it was a pretty big building project, so it's not the big building thing that's a problem here. The problem is that as image bearers, these people, just like us, were created to reflect God in everything they did. Did you know that you're created in the image of God? And you've been created to reflect Him in everything that you do. You're stamped with God's image on you. You can't get rid of it. And that's a beautiful thing. Did you know that? Do you live like that? Like God is stamped on you, on your person, on your very identity, and, and you get to reflect Him to the world. But instead of doing that, the people at Babel wanted to upstage God. Remember Genesis 1, 26? This is the first chapter of the Bible. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. But at Babel, they said, Let us make a city for our glory and for our names. They're completely backwards. It's like they took Genesis 1.26 and said, how, how much can we disobey this? <laughs> and they got every point of it, and they said, we're going we're gonna to go against what God said in every way. So these people at Babel have rejected their very identity as human beings created in the image of God. Instead of uh, reflecting God's image for the whole world to see, they're seeking for the whole world to see them. Do you see how backwards this is? They've taken God's command and they've completely flipped it around. Seeking our own glory is the complete opposite thing that God's created us to do. It's just not what we're made for. Have you ever tried to, uh, to use your computer to clean the dishes? <laughs> Doesn't work. If we went to volleyball on Tuesday and we brought a mattress instead of a volleyball, it would look foolish. In the same way, when we try and live in this life created in the image of God, and we live it trying to make our name great, make our image great, we mess it all up. It's not what we're made for. It does not, it cannot, and it, it will not work. We're going to end up like Babel if we do that. But they haven't only sought to upstage their creator and to take his place. They've also sought to upstage their sustainer, which is an egregious offense against God. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is upholding all things by the word of his power. So he hasn't only brought everything into being, but Jesus is actually holding up this world with his power. If, figuratively speaking, God were to suddenly disappear, so would our world, because he's holding it together. Every time you and I sin, and the people at Babel, as they were sinning, they're doing so on power given to them by God. So think with me for a second. Imagine a father who loves his son very, very much. And the father's going away for a weekend, and he wants to give his son the best meals he possibly can. So he gives his son like $250. His son, get yourself some nice 
food while I'm gone. And what his son does is he goes and he gets himself a nice bowl of marijuana. Can you imagine being the father? The father's in the room. How would that make you feel? Gave your son the power to go get himself dinner, and he used that power to completely go against what you wanted him to do. You've likely told him, son, don't buy bowls of marijuana. And he goes, and he, he, he couldn't do that before, but you gave him the power, and then he did what you've asked him not to do. This is what it's like to take the sustaining power that God gives us and to sin against him. It's not a light offense. So let's ask ourselves, is there anywhere in our lives where we're seeking to, to make our names great? We probably are. Ask God to seek those out, to change them in us, because it's not a small thing, brothers and sisters. We all do it, and we all must root it out. Second, they wanted to build the city and the tower, lest they be dispersed over the face of the, all, of the whole earth. So not only have they disobeyed in God and being his image bearers, like we just looked at in Genesis 1.26, but they've also disobeyed his command to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 1.28 says this, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He echoes the same statement to Noah in Genesis 9-7. But rather than spreading over the face of the earth and multiplying the glory of God as we're created to do as his image bearers, the people at Babel again tried to do the exact opposite. They were Instead of spreading out, they're isolating in one place, building a city and a tower. And instead of multiplying the glory of God by reflecting his image, they're trying to multiply the glory of self, trying to bring everyone into them. And the only reason that they could have even known that lest we be dispersed, they knew that God wanted them to disperse. They wouldn't have even mentioned that if they didn't know. So they knew God's command. They chose to break it. So now we're going to move on to the second scene in this narrative. This scene is characterized by God's response to the plans of man. So mankind made plans, and here's God's response. Scene two. Verse five says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, how many of you here had a little brother or were a little brother? A few? Uh, maybe you'll be similar to me in this. I was the little brother, so I would try and flex on my brother, right? And I'd be like, look at my muscles. You know what my brother said? Where are they? I can't see them. And for a little brother, gosh, there is nothing as humiliating as that. Even if you know he's joking, just, ooh, kills the pride, right? This is exactly what's happening in this narrative at the Tower of Babel. God had to come down to see it. You know that tower that the Babylonians were building to get to the heavens? Well, God lives in the heavens. He can't even see it. He has to come down from his throne to see 
this tower that the Babylonians were so intent on making. It's like God sitting on this massive kingdom of gold that we can't even imagine, and these little kids are trying to impress him by building Lego towers. We can't impress God with our Lego towers. We just can't do it. Our biggest blocks of church involvement or social justice or good works or theological expertise, whatever it may be, while they're good things, we should strive for them. They're not going to impress God. If we're seeking to make our way to God with those things, we're going to mess up. God's going to have to laughably come down and look. Oh, nice, nice little Lego tower you got there. Yet, verse 6 goes on to say that while we can't impress God, can't do anything to impress God, we do have the free will to sin against him in countless ways. God says, behold, they are one people. They have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So God knows exactly who he created. And, and if man were to all speak the same language, who knows what type of sin they would do? Remember in Genesis 6 where God limits their lifespan? Same thing happening here. He limits their capacity for sin, but listen here, he does it for their good. He graciously does this because he knows what kind of damage they would do to the earth, to themselves, to their relationship with God. So God graciously confuses the language of the children of man so that they don't have to do even more to offend him. So as verse 8 says, the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. Now, verse 9 concludes the story by filling in the blanks and telling us how Babylon really began. You see, the Babylonians wrote about their city origins as the gate of the gods, okay? So I'm from Los Gatos. Someone asked me, they don't speak Spanish, what's that? The cats, right? Someone asked a Babylonian, what's Babylon mean? They're gonna say, the gate of the gods. They're gonna be proud of it, right? And Moses, no, you're not gate of the gods, but he uses a little bit of wordplay, which is where we get our word babble from. He says, you're mixed up. You're confused. You don't get it. Remember how they used brick and bitumen? They don't get it. Remember how they were in the east? They don't get it. These People who were so prideful and they thought they had it right. They beat their chest because they were Babylon. They were from Gate of the Gods. They were really mixed up. They were really just confused and really they had no idea what they were even doing. So what's so bad about Babylon? It's rooted in the idolatry of self and forsaking God's good commands and 
taking themselves and putting them where God should be. And it's fully deserving of the judgment of God. Like we heard from the gospel from her today, it's, it's sin. And it rightfully earns God's judgment. And you might say, what's the badness of Babylon got to do with me? Didn't that happen forever ago? Isn't that just a story in Genesis? What's it got to do with me? Well, Genesis 3 through 11 is not just describing some historical narratives in the ancient world. It's describing the human heart. Remember Adam and Eve? Remember Cain? Remember Noah? These are all people just like us who had God's words just like us. Adam and Eve failed. Cain failed. Noah, the one we write our stories about, guess what? He failed too, miserably. And it's not just at the beginning of Genesis. Moses, who wrote all this, he struck the rock, disobeyed God, didn't enter into the promised land. David, the man after God's own heart, who we love to try and emulate, he was an adulterer and a murderer. Then, in the New Testament, you have John the Baptist. Jesus says the greatest Christian who ever lived, essentially, and guess what? He questioned if Jesus was even the Messiah. And Peter, the one on whom the church is built, we see that in Matthew 16, Jesus says that. He denied his Lord three times. So, if we're going to say we're above Babel, we're going to have to say we're holier than Moses, David, John the Baptist, and Peter. Are you? I'm not. I guarantee you, I'm not. So, Babylon rages rampantly in all of our hearts. That sin and rebellion that we see there doesn't just belong to Babylon. It belongs to us. And we can't get rid of it. We can't get rid of it with our puny little Lego towers trying to impress God. At the core of who we are, we all desire to make a name for ourselves. It's what gives many businessmen their unending drive. They want to make a name for themselves. It's what gets people podcasting, and it's why we obsess over social media all the time. Because... We want to make a name for ourselves. We want people to know us. Not just know us, but think we're great. It's why we prepare, speaking from the heart here, it's why we prepare for how we're going to defend ourselves before someone even offends us. We're already, in certain conversations, we're already planning our defense before we even get offended. Why do we do that? Because if someone is going to criticize us, if they're going to make a judgment against us, our name is going to be tarnished. Something about us, which we want to be up here, is going to be brought down here. That damages our name. We're, we all, we're all like that. It's often, if we're honest, why we're insecure. Because what if people really knew us? It's why we hide from authentic relationships. Because again, if people really knew 
who we were at our core. They knew of our flaws and our quirks and everything that we don't show on the podcast and on social media. They really knew that. They wouldn't think we're so great. And then our name would be tarnished. So for better or for worse, we all want to look good. And if we're honest, while we're trying to make ourselves look good, we can't make Christ look good at the same time. We can't look good and Christ look good at the same time. If Christ is going to look good, we must become less. That's what John 3.30 says. Christ must become greater, but I must become less. That's the paradigm there. But for better or for worse, we all want to look good. And if we're honest, we don't always make Christ look good. And in doing that, we've all broken God's law. We've distorted his image that we see we're supposed to reflect in Genesis 1.26. And because we've completely rejected God's law in doing so, we deserve judgment. Now, that's not something we love to talk about, but it's true. We're going to reject our maker and our sustainer. We deserve judgment because he's perfect. And our sin must be judged because he's perfectly just. But, brothers and sisters, we have a great hope, even for the greatest of sinners, which I would add, Paul the Apostle says he's the worst of them, so that doesn't bode well for us. So even for us, the worst of sinners, the love of God is stronger than the sin and the rebellion that's in all of our hearts. The grace of God, it reaches farther than our shame. Here's the beauty in all of this. In Genesis 11, God comes down. He judges the people at Babel for their foolishness and their sin. He confuses their languages or he confuses their language into languages. But that same God knew from the beginning of time that he was going to come down in the person of Jesus at that manger in Bethlehem. And at the manger, we see that the way to God isn't by trying to climb up, but it's by seeing that God has come down. It's not just a Christmas story. It shows us the very character of God, that he comes down to meet us in our sin and in our rebellion. And if we'll let go of our desire to make a name for ourselves, it's in all of us. We can know him and be saved from that judgment that we deserve. Now this kingdom, unlike our little Lego kingdoms, it is so much better than the kingdom that our selfish desires will offer us. This kingdom's found all throughout the pages of Scripture. Abraham longed for it, as the book of Hebrews says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The prophet Daniel, he predicted it, saying, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Pentecost fulfills it in Acts 2, where various languages, they don't limit sin, but they multiply the glory of God in the worship of Jesus Christ. And we 
heard this in our scripture reading today. Revelation completes it when a multitude of languages cry out in unison, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So yes, Babylon is really, really bad and so are we. But God is really, really good. And he's come to redeem us and to make all things new. He's come in the manger and in the person of Jesus to live a perfect life. And if we believe in him, we trust him, we follow him, turning from our sins, we can enter that kingdom that Daniel says will never end and one day will join with all the saints in heaven of all different languages and will sing to the Lamb and to our God. So if you're here this morning and you have not decided to believe in Jesus, turn from your sins and enter his kingdom, I implore you to do so. He's more than worth it. But if you're here this morning and you confidently know that you believe in Jesus and you're a part of his kingdom, which I would guess many of you are, I encourage you That's a beautiful thing. And it's a great thing to just enjoy that God's made us and he's brought us into his kingdom. And I would also encourage you that the way that kingdom is manifested on this earth is through what? The church. The church. And in this local body that we're a part of today, gathering together, has a mission and an opportunity to, as a manifestation of God's kingdom, to help Santa Cruz, to help California, and even out to the ends of the earth, as the Bible says. We have the opportunity and the commissioning to be the means through which the world knows who Jesus is and through which the world can enter his kingdom. How does that all happen? It happens through the church. So my encouragement to you is to relish in the glory it is that God has saved us and has provided redemption and dive in to the beauty that is found in the local church. Connect. We have a lot of stuff going on in September, but it's the church and it's the opportunity to have our neighbors and our loved ones and everyone around us to know who Jesus is and to enter his kingdom. So he's worth it for the unbeliever and he's worth it for the believer.